welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Daniel and Brendan from Polygon Zero. We talk about their early experiments with different proving systems, their work combining Planck and Halo, which became Planky one and the more recent contribution of Planck plus Fry, which is borrowed from Starks, that makes up Planky two We look at why these combinations matter, what the technology enables within the Ethereum ecosystem, their acquisition by Polygon, and more. But before we start in, if you're looking to jump into zero-knowledge tech professionally, I want to remind you to head over to the ZK Jobs Board. There you can find job posts from some of the top teams working in ZK. I also encourage teams who are hiring to use the jobs board to find their next hires. We have teams like Polygon Hermes, EF, and Protocol Labs there already, so be sure to add your jobs there as well. I also just want to make sure that the ZK Hack Mini happening now is on your radar. ZK Hack is a two-week event with puzzle hacking competitions and ZK Tool workshops. It started on March 1st. It runs until March 15th. Uh, this coming week, we actually have the Polygon Zero folks presenting. So if you like this episode and want to find out more, be sure to head over there. And next week, we will be hosting the ZK Jobs Fair, as well as a panel focused on ZK Tech. You can actually already sign up for both of these on Hopin and be notified when they're happening. So I hope to see you there. So now I'll let Tanya, the podcast producer, share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Alio. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that uses cutting edge cryptography to achieve the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. It's gas-free and gives developers the tools they need to build programs that protect privacy while allowing applications to be regulatory compliant. The same team has also built a new open source smart contract language called Leo that enables non-cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to build the next generation of private applications like front-running resistant decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, and more. Visit alio.org to learn more about the protocol or roll up your sleeves and go to leo-lang.org to start building. That's leo-lang.org. So thank you again, Alio. Now here's Anna's interview with Daniel and Brendan from Polygon Zero. Today I'm speaking with Daniel and Brendan from Polygon Zero. I want to say welcome to the show to both of you. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us on. So... I've actually been trying to have you come on the show for a long while, and I'm so happy we finally get a chance to speak about Polygon Zero, formerly Mirror. Um, I also last week had a chance to catch up with Mihailo and map out the whole Polygon ZK landscape. Um, and so we'll definitely be referencing other parts of that ecosystem in this episode if people want to check that out before. Now, I was asking you to come on the show for a very long while but was rebuffed because, as I later found out, there had been this kind of deal happening. So I feel like what we can start with, I'd, I'd really like to hear a little bit about where does this start? Let's go back in time to Mir, to maybe even before Mir, so that we can hear kind of the trajectory that led you to the Polygon Zero merge or acquisition and yeah, what you're working on today. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it begins like with how I got into this space and and that was uh 
wandering into this uh, Stanford auditorium when I was living in the Bay Area where uh, Vitalik and Dan Bonet and uh, I think a few others were presenting the original plasma paper. And, and there was this moment during that talk when it was sort of like this offhand comment when uh, Dan Bonet was like, he said something like, oh, you could just do this all with snarks. You could just prove like state transitions on a blockchain with snarks. And that sort of just stuck with me. Um, and I was doing other stuff at the time. And and so I met Daniel at Zcon Zero in 2018, and we sort of hit it off and we just started talking more and more. And, and so we decided to, I guess in 2019, start Mirror, which was, I guess the, the premise was just to use um, snarks to provide privacy and scalability for, for blockchains. Cool. Yeah, I guess for me, I guess before I got into crypto, I had a pretty typical background as a Silicon Valley engineer. So before this, I was working at Google, which I joined to work on Google Glass. That was a very fun project for a while, but unfortunately... A, <laughs> the Google yeah. Glass. I hadn't thought about that in a while. The kind of, what was it? AR goggles, glasses, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, it, it was really the, the hot, fun project going on at Google back then, but unfortunately it got canceled. And then I, I just couldn't really find anything that interested me over there. And then I became really, really interested in cryptography and zero knowledge proofs. And I, I thought it was really a little bit mind blowing when I heard about how Zcash worked and how it was possible to prove, to provide this really strong privacy guarantee using this advanced cryptography. Um, so that's when I went to the Zcash conference and met Brendan. This is in Montreal, right? This is Zcon mm -hmm. Zero. I was also We're, there. Uh, <laughs> I did an episode where I interviewed a gazillion people actually from like during that conference. We can try to dig it up. I actually just recently mentioned it on another show. That conference was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's very cool that you met there. You met at Zcon Zero in Montreal, the first Zcash conference. Um, were you... Like you were interested in zero knowledge, I guess, but like what what were you kind of meeting as? Were you like, let's do a project together? Did you already have an idea? Yeah, so so I think we were both sort of like playing with different ideas, like and then yeah, we just sort of talked kind of informally and hit it off. I I, I think both of us had recently left our jobs with like nothing <laughs> on the other end. <laughs> so, so 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 I think there was like a certain uh, incentive to to like do something, and yeah, we we sort of started talking about doing like an infrastructure project, like Mirror, like a new a new blockchain, and yeah, kind of, kind of went from there. You knew, I guess it sounds like right off the bat, though, you knew this was going to be in the zero knowledge space. Like it was that angle. It wasn't like blockchain first. It was the zero knowledge part. Um, what were the first kind of iterations of this? Like what technologies were you actually experimenting with? What were, what did you plan on building when you started? Yeah. So so I guess we, we started talking really seriously in October of 2018. And that's uh, right when the original Zexy paper uh, came out, and so, so that was sort of a good signal because it was like, oh, you know, you know people smarter than us are are, are thinking about uh, these same problems, and and so I think that we sort of came at it from the angle of trying to to build something like Zexy, and then we, we found that uh, there were some limitations with Zexy, like it couldn't support 
um, applications that relied on shared state, like AMMs and um, a lot of the DeFi applications at the time. And so we were trying to to come up with a design that um, supported those applications uh, and also provided scalability with with recursive proofs. Um, so, th- so that was sort of, I think, the premise. Mm. I remember, like, I think we met at the ZK Summit 4 in San Francisco, <laughs> the last in-person one that, that I did until the next one, which is coming up. Um, but yeah, you gave a workshop. And I believe at the time it was a workshop on Zexy, and that was 2019 fall. So you, it sounds like you had been working on this kind of idea for some time, but it's, I mean, as far as I can tell, you pivoted at, you pivoted away from it. Were you at the time already thinking of Mir as becoming like an L1? Was it an L2? Did you actually see yourselves as part of Ethereum or yeah? Wh- how, how did you envision this project at that time? Yeah. So, so I think at the time, uh, we had this thesis and in retrospect, a lot of it was pretty wrong. Um, so, so we thought that there was room for uh, a lot of L1s and that if we provided a different programming environment for developers um, that might offer scalability and privacy, that you know they would be really quick to, to move to this new environment and, and that Ethereum wouldn't uh, accrue like such a, a big part of the developer mindshare. And I think that we can say, you know, with some caveats that that it was not true and that mm-hmm. uh, it, it's been really striking how uh, in the interim, Ethereum has really become the focal point for building Web3 and uh, crypto applications. And and so I think for us, like the this realization that Ethereum and L2 was kind of where the energy was uh, and where like real users were, were using these technologies and that I guess jumping ahead to to Polygon, that that like Polygon could sort of fill in the places where we were weak. Uh, so mm. business development, dev relations, like things that they do really well. Um, and we could kind of build in, in the L2 uh, space was, was something that was like really exciting to, to cool. us. I want to hear a little bit of that interim time though, like between, you know, you shifting away from Zexy, deciding, like, had you already decided around that time, like, actually, we're going to focus more on this roll-up model was Mir originally, uh, like once you were developing the the current form, was it a roll-up? Yeah, so so the the focus was definitely on some sort of multi-chain Ethereum. Like we, we, we wanted to be able to to verify uh, proofs about Mir on Ethereum and mm-hmm. and develop a proving system uh, that worked on Ethereum. I I think the the biggest part of the sort of journey with Mir for me was when we started and, and we raised money and it was actually really scary because it was very clear to us at the time that the technology was not ready and we weren't sure if the underlying ZK primitives would get there. So back in 2019, like Planck had just come out, like there, there, there were a lot of sort of promising signs, but I mean, it took two minutes to generate a recursive proof. I, I'm not even sure that there was an implementation of, of Planck yet. And so I think for me, uh, Daniel, w- would you say that that was like, a little bit nerve wracking to have accepted like venture capital money and and not <laughs> being sure if we could build a, a scalable yeah, blockchain. For sure. And backing up a little bit, in those early days, I was actually more interested in building something that that only used ZKPs for privacy and then actually used sharding instead as a means of scalability. 
And the reasoning was just that we know how to do this and it doesn't rely on any kind of new breakthroughs in ZK technology. Whereas I, I think Brenton felt very strongly that we should we should kind of do it the right way and we should actually prove every transaction is valid. Uh, and to, to me, that was like, the right approach, but it was also the approach that we didn't really know how to implement back then. It was more of a, a research project. Wow. Um, so it, it was a little bit scary pursuing that approach at first, but uh, eventually we got there and we developed the primitives that we need to to do recursive proofs very, very quickly and very cheaply. Mm. How were you building your team during this time? Like you had this vision or you had this sort of like, I, lo I love this, that you're kind of like taking a leap of faith, hoping that the underlying mechanisms kind of like <laughs> caught up by the time you were rolling. Um, yeah. How are you hiring? And, and like, what was your team at this at this stage? Yeah. So so when we started, I think we were like two months in to having raised funding and being in a position where we could hire when uh, COVID struck. And oh, so, yes. <laughs> so, so that made things a little bit more challenging. Um, and so I think for us, um, it was really important that we only hire people that like we felt were could could really contribute. And um, and I think I, I would love to say that, you know, we were such amazing recruiters that we were able to do that like intentionally. But instead, we, we just got really lucky. Um, and so like we hired uh, William Bourgeau, who's like, I think now like one of the top, in my very biased opinion, one of the top like applied cryptography ZK engineers in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we just randomly met him at an event in the Bay Area and he had to like fly back to Switzerland in like two weeks or something. And so we, we uh, moved really quickly, um, but we were a small team. I think for all of 2020, I think we were just four or five people. Um, oh. And so we really focused on on trying to like piggyback on the great work that other teams were doing, like um, Aztec, the Planck authors were doing a lot of work, not, not just on Planck, but on sort of building the conceptual framework around custom gates. Um, the Zcash uh, team was was building Halo. And so in 2020, we initially, like our first stab at, um, at building more efficient recursion was an implementation of, of Halo that used uh, Planck and custom gates. And so I think for, for context, uh, we improved recursion efficiency from like two minutes to like 10 to 15 seconds. Just with that, with that combination, Plonk plus Halo. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that was Plonky, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plonky one. Plonky one. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just, just, uh, you just mentioned William. I just want to highlight, like he was actually on the show. He was the winner, one of the winners of the uh, ZK Hack competition. Mm -hmm. And we actually had a chance to chat with him as well. So you had this tiny team you had started to create some of the research and actually contribute back into. It's like, it sounds like at the beginning, it was like a lot of scene research, implementing research, but at some stage it shifted to actually contributing more into the research pool. Mm -hmm. At that point, you're four people. How did you actually approach it? Like, were you doing imp implementations or were you doing research? Uh, so, so at that stage, I, I think it was purely implementations. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there was a little bit of work. I mean, Daniel, you, you'd have more context than, than me, but a little bit of work on like building more complex custom gates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say it's more on the implementation side. We, we've always been more on the implementation side. Sometimes we take different primitives that weren't really designed to be used together and put them together. 
we, we have made a few tweaks here and there to the primitives that were already established. For example, you know, the proving system Plonk is really designed to be used within a large elliptic curve field. And we use it in this really small 64-bit field, which sort of breaks some of the soundness analysis in the Plonk paper. So we, so we had to do a slightly different analysis and figure out like which checks do we need to repeat or ha- how, do we, how do we make this work in the field that we want to use. Why did you actually need the smaller elliptic curve or fi- finite field for that? What, why was that? Um, we're just very focused on performance. And in Plunky 1, we were able to get decent recursion speed, but it really the, the bottleneck there was just field arithmetic, for especially multiplying two field elements. It's basically the same technique that that is taught in grade school, where we have this quadratic blow up of intermediate results, and it ends up being fairly expensive. Um, so, with, with a standard two fifty six bit field, multiplication takes something like eighty cycles on a typical CPU, and our idea was that it would just be really nice if we could use a 64-bit field since CPUs can natively do 64-bit multiplication with a throughput that's very, very high. Did this have anything to do with like Ethereum's kind of limitations? Were you trying to fit into what Ethereum would allow? Or was this purely because the speed was too slow? So so both. Um, So on Ethereum, you can't really verify Halo proofs because uh, if you think about what a Halo recursive proof is, it's really like an incremental like verification step. So, so you're you're you have all this uh, this computation that you need to check for the proof, and you're sort of like updating an accumulator that you can then uh, check in the final verification step. And so that that final verification is too expensive uh, to perform on Ethereum. And so we we really wanted. I, I mean, the goal was something that was really really performant. Um, and also was like natively compatible with uh, with Ethereum and with other chains, and so that kind of brought us to like in early 2021. Daniel was was like, "Yeah, I I, I really think we can do recursive Fry," and I at the time I was not a believer. I, I you know Fractal had had come out and and it was super interesting work and like a, this really big breakthrough, but their concrete performance with fractal was like it took 10 minutes to to uh, generate a, a recursive proof and so mm. like just looking at where the the state of the art was it, it didn't seem like it was reasonable and yeah I was totally wrong and and so uh, Daniel came up with and William and, and the rest of the team came up with some really really interesting uh, techniques and and I think it gets to like this deeper insight that Daniel was describing which is like usually when we think about performance and efficiency, um, we think about it like asymptotically, like, oh, we have these uh, operations. And I think that there's this there's this tendency to forget that like 256-bit field operations uh, that you need for elliptic curves like are actually much slower than, uh, than 64-bit field operations, um, even if you have to repeat some checks uh, in the 64-bit field. And so I think that, that that was like a really simple observation, but it, it kind of laid the groundwork for Plunky too. I kind of want to keep digging into this a little bit deeper. So I, I want to understand what part of this, like you, it sounds like you had to optimize, you had to change Plonk a little bit in order to work with 
halo more efficiently or am I, or like, I'm kind of trying to understand where, like in that combination. So you're putting Planck and halo together. What part are you changing and how? So, so initially Planck E1 was Planck and then halo is sort of the polynomial commitment scheme and, and mm -hmm. I guess recursion um, approach. And, and so we decided to take out halo and replace it with Fry, which is the, the polynomial commitment scheme or testing scheme used in um, in Starks. And this is sort of your step towards Plunky too, though, right? <laughs> like this is where you're like, oh, and actually where, where did that breakthrough come from? Where were you like, oh, we could do this? Like, was it because Halo sort of hinted at some sort of um, characteristic that was similar to Fry, but didn't quite do it the way you wanted? Like, had you seen some parallels between those two systems? I think we had some influence from the Fractal paper and implementation. As Brendan mentioned, Fractal implemented recursive Fry. And at the time, it was very slow. But we, we had some discussions with Dev, who did the prototype of that. And he was sort of optimistic that even though it takes 10 minutes right now, that there there might be a ton of ways to make that much better. So yeah, I think that's where we got the basic idea from. And then we just started putting pieces together and looking at like, what if we combine this with Planck? And then what if we arithmetized it in a certain way? How fast can we make this? Can Maybe we should actually dig into what Fry does differently. So Planck is a proving system. You're using Planck for both of these. Are you using the same Planck for both? Or had you adjusted Planck as well or used a different updated version. I don't know if you call them versions. But like, um, Yeah. In Plonky 1, we basically used Plonk as is because we were using the typical size 256-bit field back then. Um, the, the only change was that we used Halo instead of KCG-based polynomial commitments. But mm -hmm. then in Plonky 2, oh, that's where inside we- Inside Plonk. Okay. I get it. So like mm -hmm. Plonk originally was using something else and you replaced part of Plonk with Halo. Got it. Yeah, and, and then in Plonky 2, we made a few more changes to Plonk. It's still really based on Plonk, but n now since we're using a smaller field, we had to redo some of the analysis and repeat some of the checks that Plonk does in order to achieve the soundness that we want. Would you, I mean, would you call Plonky 2 an extension of Fractal then? Like, could you say that it is actually like fractal too. <laughs> like, I'm just curious why. Yeah. Fractally too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say it was somewhat inspired by fractal. We didn't really use any of the arithmetization that fractal uses. So okay. technically they're not too similar, just that they both use recursive fry. Got it. And in your presentation, Brandon, at uh, ZK Day in the fall, you had said that Plonky 2 consists of Plonk plus Fry plus Wizardry. So tell me. <laughs> Very obnoxious. <laughs> is there another, is there anything else sprinkled in there that we should know about? Yeah. So, so I mean, the way that I sort of look at it is it's not like a, a this amazing breakthrough to decide like, okay, Planck is a is a snark or a, an arithmetization, an argument system, and Fry is a polynomial commitment scheme. We know that we can use these together, so let's just like put them together and see what happens. Like 
But I think the really cool work was in building the actual arithmetization to make certain things really, really efficient. So like in Plonky 2, we use a really wide uh, circuit model. So there are a ton of wires and this allows us to do Poseidon, in, in, which is a hash function, mm-hmm. um, very cheaply. And so I think both at the like circuit engineering level and then at the uh, low level optimization level, like we found this this really cool prime, which is uh, our teammate Hamish called it the, or named it the Goldilocks field. So it's defined as uh, two to the 64 uh, minus two to the 32 plus one. And so it has this like really, really nice structure for uh, CPUs and for doing arithmetic really efficiently. And so I think like it, the wizardry part just refers to really, really solid engineering work um, that was done at, at both of those levels. Hmm. I'm curious, like, what's the outcome? You know, you're, you're talking about it's it's improved basically on the original Plonky, but what had changed? So like now, is this something that could be verified on Ethereum? Is this something that, you know, does it have certain characteristics that are new? I'm curious to hear. Uh, yeah, so, so the upside is that it can be verified on any smart contract platform that supports cryptographic hash functions, which is huge and and it is really, really performant. So previously our uh, recursion performance was about 10 seconds and now it's 170 milliseconds. Mm. Um, and so we were super proud of that and like getting below uh, a second for recursion efficiency is, is cool. And there are a bunch of other like uh, performance benefits for like beyond recursion for making like arbitrary proofs uh, really fast. When you talk about this performance, are you talking about the performance of the verification or the performance of the proof generation? Of the the prover. Of the prover. But this is, is this happening in a smart contract on Ethereum or is this happening sort of off chain? So it it would be happening off chain. Okay. Um, So you generate a proof off chain and then the the verifier is really fast too. Um, The proof sizes get a little bit bigger, but I, yeah. I have a personal rant on why proof sizes don't matter for blockchains, but I can save that. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you've worked on improving that. <laughs> or wait, when you say proof size, is that different from proof time? Yeah. So, so proof ah, size okay, is like, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, no, no problem. Yeah. So, so the prover is faster. The proofs get a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. um, but I would argue that that isn't, isn't really material. Well, yeah, to me, it's like it, if you're looking at efficiency, you're really you care mostly about how quickly it can be verified. So if the verification time doesn't change, and the proof generation time is faster, then I guess it is good. I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> we we think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're sending the proofs to Ethereum, we do have to pay attention to proof sizes because Ethereum charges. I think it's currently 16 gas per byte of transaction data, but okay. there there is a proposal to reduce it quite a bit in order to help scale rollups like ours. And if that goes through, then our gas cost on Ethereum will actually be just as low as any other proof system. But this is this is dependent on like an EIP. Mm-hmm. That's always a little challenging because <laughs> those take oddly long times. <laughs> but do you feel like, is this a non-controversial uh, one that you think will pass? I, I think so. There, there was some pushback about passing it immediately, but I think the pushback was mainly around 
testing and, you know, it's kind of a drastic change to be pushing through quickly without so much testing and development. Do you know which EIP that is? I think it was 4488. Okay. For anyone who's not familiar, EIP is, what what does this stand for? Ethereum Improvement Proposal. Yeah. And I guess there's probably some documentation on this. This needs to then go through sort of the the soft governance to before, before it gets implemented. I just realized in this conversation that I had never really understood, I had never really dug in on the impact of proof size. Tell me a little bit more about this gas price idea. So maybe give me a few numbers. So right now that you, you mentioned like the proving time, I think you said was 170 milliseconds. Is that correct? To generate a, a recursive proof. To, re- to generate a recursive proof. Is that the last proof to go and be verified? Uh, yeah. So so we can like wrap there. I'm not sure how deep we want to get in, in this. Go for but, it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, Fry wanna... has this parameter called the blow up factor. And so there's this really cool trade off between proof size and proof time. And so for us, when we're generating transaction proofs, we want to minimize proof time and we don't really care about proof size. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end, w- once we've recursively aggregated all of these transaction proofs, we are now paying, uh, we're, we're metered on proof size. And so we want to change the blow up factor so that we can minimize um, proof size. So there's a slightly more expensive proof that occurs at the end of that process, which is basically to shrink the proof that is the final step before going to Ethereum. And this is the recursion. Yeah, so so the recursion would be in like the intermediate steps, like like we like we have this uh, oh. this set of transaction proofs, and we want to like okay. recursively aggregate them, and so we put them into a tree, and each of the intermediate nodes um, is a, a recursive uh, proof. Got it. But at the very end, you wouldn't call that a recursive proof as well. You called it compression. We yeah we we, we definitely would. It just has a different uh, cost, so it takes longer than. Um, 170 milliseconds, and and it's really like uh, it, that's 170 milliseconds for like a one to one recursion, and so if it were uh, like two to one, it would take a little bit longer. I see. And when you say one to one, it's like a proof recursed one, like mm-hmm. one proof recursed. But if you mm-hmm. tried to combine two and recurse recurse them into one, mm-hmm. that would be double the time. Yeah, roughly. Okay. What is the time on the last one on this last recursive proof? Yeah, I'd have to double check, but I think it's under 10 seconds now. There there are a lot of knobs that we can turn. If we want to get it down to one or two seconds, then it would just be a slightly larger proof, but wouldn't really make much difference. I want to kind of go to the other end of this. Like you sort of had painted this picture. We're kind of focused very much on this last proof that's verified on chain. But like, how much can you put into this? Like, I'm kind of like, let's go further back towards the actual roll-up part of it, the action. Like, how much are you able to batch or put into this thing? And maybe if you can compare it to anything we already know. The tree depth for the the tree that contains uh, transaction proofs at the leaves and uh, we aggregate into a single proof, that's not really bounded by, like, at least in any practical sense. Um, and so we can take a lot of a lot of proofs and or a lot of transactions and then recursively aggregate them. It's it's a slightly different approach to like Starkware, where we have a batch and we're generating a proof that proves validity of the entire batch. We uh, are taking a single transaction, proving that that transaction is valid, and then aggregating all of those proofs uh, into a single proof. 
Mm. And going step by step, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you're doing multiple recursion. Mm -hmm. Is there a similarity here to like the MENA system where they're also using recursive proofs like deep in the actual L1? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I think they were uh, sort of the pioneers for for this approach. And I think since it's been a similar approach has been taken by uh, Aztec and uh, ZK Sync, and there are probably other roles as well. What would you say, like, you know, you sort of said there's a lot of, it's quite high, like the amount of transactions could be quite high. Is there any limit? Is there anything that you would say, like, you'd want to cap before you do one of these? Because like, I mean, the way I always understand this is like, you're kind of, you're doing a roll up after a certain amount of time. I'm maybe also thinking a little bit more on like the Arbitrum episode that I did. And like an, after a number of transactions, you're kind of doing a check-in point with the main chain. How are you thinking about that? Like, do you want to decide, oh, we, we do want to cap the transactions, maybe even just so that there's not so many layers of recursion? Because I'm guessing each one of those costs something in terms of time. Yeah, I'd say there are a few potential bottlenecks. So one is just sequencing. Before we begin this proof generation process, we need to put the transactions in order in such a way that there are no conflicts, no invalid transactions. Mm -hmm. So that's not really about proofs. That's just kind of the traditional blockchain bottleneck. And then besides that, there's just could potentially be sort of a economic bottleneck where we just don't want such a huge number of proofs that it becomes very expensive to generate all of the proofs. Yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of limited because uh, like we're paying a fee every time we want to to have a proof verified on Ethereum. And so we mm-hmm. need to like amortize that cost across transactions that are submitted to each block. And so you sort of want to fill or like pick a batch size that you sort of have a decent assurance that you'll be able to fill. So it's cheaper. Got it. I actually, in thinking about a system like this, like recursive snarks, I mean, I had this episode with uh, one sub for Z Kapru, and he made this comment that roll-ups are just dApps. And then I was like, what? <laughs> but then I was like, I was a little bit mind blown. But I realized this is something I'm curious about, like in a roll-up like yours, where it's recursive, and, and since it's built, like there's an on-chain, it's smart contracts, there's an on-chain logic, is each recursive step actually also interacting with a smart, is that like happening within the smart contract? This is where I'm like maybe a bit confused. I say sort of off-chain, but like, can you kind of explain what at what points the smart contract itself on the main chain is doing something? Yeah, so, so every time a proof comes back, so all of the proof generation happens off-chain. Um, okay. That, that's funny that, Example, because that's I, I've been trying to explain that to people outside of crypto in that in sort of a similar way. Like you're effectively depositing your funds into the smart contract, and you're basically just like giving it to some guy or to some like committee, and they can do mm. whatever they want. But at the end, they have to they're sort of forced to behave honestly because they have to produce this proof um, in order to to verify a state transition, and so the smart contract just handles the bridging logic and then verifies each new proof. But on every step, this is the question I have, like, does it verify each step in the recursive process? Just the end. Just the end. Okay. It is just doing the end. But then, but then why is it expensive? Because you use that term expensive for the different, like the, the, before the last proof proofs. 
Yeah. So, so it, it's just, I think like pre EIP 4488, it costs like a million gas to, uh, to verify a Planky 2 proof. Um, okay. It's an estimate because we haven't done the implementation yet. And then after we anticipate it'll cost about 200,000 gas. And so that's just like an expensive transaction. And so you want to kind of minimize that if you want to deliver uh, low fees to users. The proofs in the recursion tree, when they, like before we compress that last proof, they would be really expensive because the proof size is just bigger. Um, so if we didn't do the compression step and we just uh, sent it to Ethereum, then we would just pay more gas. Okay, but it, because there's that final recursive Sorry, it will be consistent. Actually, you'd have. It's not that if you include more transactions or you add more layers of recursion, that that last one would actually be more expensive. That's always going to be, I guess, consistent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And okay. so, so, so that's a really nice thing. Um, obviously, not to take anything away from Starkware, we heavily like use their research and and like they're amazing. But they end up paying more gas under their current approach because. Uh, the size of the proof depends on the batch size, and they have to sort of make this trade-off between proving time and proof size. Um, whereas we can sort of get the best of both worlds, where we can optimize for proof time when we're generating those proofs, and then optimize for proof size at the end. Um, and that circuit that we're optimizing for proof size is really small. So as Daniel said, it only takes 10 seconds to to compress. Could they do something similar, though? Do you think they Definitely. will? <laughs> now that they, they saw Definitely. what you did. <laughs> but we, um, so, so I guess uh, uh, William just finished. Uh, so, so we did Planky 2, which is recursion. And um, we, we use Starks, like air-based Starks for our transaction proofs. Um, and so William just finished uh, the recursive Stark verifier. And so I, I think we're going to rebrand to recursive Starkware. <laughs> <Well, laughs> I don't know if you're going to be allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's good. <laughs> yeah, this is cool. And actually, this speaks to maybe a question I have about some of the other teams. You're mentioning Starks, and I have had Bobbin Threadbear, who's doing the Maiden work at uh, Polygon, as well as Jordy and David from Hermes. But on the Maiden front, I think it was in that episode that he mentioned this recursive Starks. And it's interesting, though, that your team is doing it. And I'm curious, like, would you say, like, is Maiden and Polygon Zero distinct entities? Or are these, like, the same thing? Because, like, are you are you tackling a problem from opposite sides? Or are you actually working together? Yeah, so definitely working together. Um, mm -hmm. We're, I think, I would say exploring different parts of the design space. So all three of us, uh, Hermes, Maiden, and Zero, um, we all use Stark VMs. Um, okay. And there are a lot of design choices, and it's unclear like which will be best suited for uh, verifying Ethereum transactions or Ethereum compatible transactions. And so, I think it's been super nice to be able to work with like we work with Bobbin really closely, and it, it's been really good to to see sort of his research on Stark VMs, and then be able to kind of cheat off his uh, paper a little bit and incorporate some of his work into into what we're doing um, and and vice versa like he's using the Goldilocks field and um, and so I, I I mean I've been like really pleasantly surprised since we've joined polygon at the level of collaboration and and how useful it's been uh, both with Hermes and, and with with mine 
it's a really interesting constellation that has been put together. Do you feel, though, like, are all three projects moving away from the snark? Like, is is the snark going to be tossed to the waste bin? <laughs> <laughs> so much for snarktober. <laughs> we're going to need uh, something else. Well, well I mean, if... if Starktober, if, maybe? If, maybe. Uh, that, that would make Ellie Bensasan really happy. Um, yeah. But, uh, or was it Stark? Was it Snarktember or Snarktober? I forget which one came I, first. I think it anyway. was Snarktober. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think uh, just to be pedantic, like Plonky Two, I think is still a snark because we do like okay. a pre-processing um, step, and and so. But I, I I do think that that you're you're getting it or you're making a really good point, which is that the like the line between like oh these are Starks and these are snarks uh, is sort of blurring. To everyone except like the very uh, precise like academics that enforce like definitions that that in the blockchain sense don't don't necessarily mm. make that much of a difference. And do you feel like because it, it does sound almost like these hybrid Frankenstein? Sorry, it's not a better word. Like combinations <laughs> of these pieces of these different protocols that all get put together and then walked around a little bit. Sorry, I'm gonna just keep going with it. <laughs> Frankenstein. I mean, I think oh, I think Plucky Two is beautiful, so so, so I, I strongly object to the, the Frankenstein characterization. But for the record, um, but no, I, you're you're totally right. Uh, I think people are are just experimenting at this point, and 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 I think definitely with the work that we've done, I think that a lot of people are are taking a second look at at Fry and sort of some of the design choices and and uh, properties that. The different uh, systems have. Why do you work on this? Like, what what is the goal of this work to make it more efficient, to make it cheaper? Like, are you also working towards sort of this zk EVM model that we had talked about with Jordy, which is this idea that you would have, you know, an EVM working as EVM works, you know, within a rollup, or is your goal at Polygon Zero different? So I think the the eventual goal is the same, but the mm -hmm. like I think Polygon has the luxury because of how big it is and because of how successful they've been and actually attracting users and developers. Um, they have the luxury to explore the design space, and so what the Hermes uh, approach is is it's super cool. They're trying to like take EVM bytecode um, and actually simulate its execution in a snark. And so we're taking mm -hmm. a different approach, which is let's try to develop a VM that runs in a Stark that's really, really efficient. And then let's see if we can take Solidity or Yule code and compile it to bytecode that executes in that sort of computer running inside of Stark. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit more like the ZK Sync approach too, right? Like they exactly. work with, yeah. they, like under the hood, there's something else. Like the opcodes are different, but there's a, a way to compile solidity into what they need to, what that machine needs to read. Um, would you say that like Maiden's approach is similar? Like, is that, because I think that's what we had talked about actually with Bobbin. So under the hood, there's going to be kind of different opcodes, a different system. Would you want eventually to have native, a native language to write on that? Like, would you, would you only focus on this EVM compatibility with this with the compiling down, or would you also potentially be trying to develop something under under the hood that people can directly interact with? Basically, do you want like a, a native DSL at some point? <laughs> I think I just I think I repeated. I don't think you say native DSL, do you? I think you say 
DSL. No, no, no I think that's yeah. Well. <laughs> like native domain specific language. Anyway, um, <laughs> I would say a lot of the design choices that we're making as we're designing this VM are really tailored to Ethereum and and tailored to what kind of operations or computations Ethereum apps are doing. So if we were to design something that's really separate, where we're not compiling from Solidity or Yule, then I think we would design it differently and we would use more native field arithmetic and less binary operations. Um, because you know the Ethereum apps do a ton of binary operations. So that's really been our focus is how do we take those and make them relatively efficient as much as we can. But it's it's not really a great fit for snarks. So if we were really starting with a clean slate, I'd say we would design things fairly differently. Mm. Do you imagine, I mean, I had this chat a little bit with Mihailo, this idea of like EVM as currently like the end goal, because there's so many Solidity devs and people are familiar with it. The contracts exist to redeploy on EVM compatible chain is very easy right now. But like, I think the question I had was like, are you also evolving EVM? I was in that episode, but like, are you also evolving it? Are you thinking about changing it? So it doesn't actually, it's not exactly one-to-one. Yeah, I think so. So uh, a good example is we profiled a bunch of Ethereum transactions and the average Ethereum transaction makes SHA-3 or makes 13 uh, SHA-3 uh, hash invocations. And those are really, really inefficient for sort of computing inside uh, a Snark or a Stark. And so we are switching that out as much as possible with a Stark-friendly hash function Poseidon. And so I think that there will be a lot of changes there in terms of like functional changes. Um, I'm not sure. What, what do you think, Dana? Yeah, I'd say right now we're focused on how do we get to 99% compatibility. So we're taking making a few tweaks, like Brendan mentioned, that could potentially break strict compatibility, but for the vast majority of applications, it should be fully compatible. Mm. So it sounds like it sounds like you're more like looking. You're 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 not necessarily going to change this, but you're trying to get as close as possible to it. Do you think? I mean, this is more philosophical, though. Do you think like and this maybe is even a, a question for the whole Polygon or maybe whole Ethereum? I don't want to say competitor, but like the EVM compatible world. Like, is this something that will evolve past what that is on Ethereum? eventually. And I, I'm throwing it to you guys. I know you might not, <laughs> maybe this isn't something you're thinking about, but. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit above uh, my pay grade, but I think it's it's really hard because you want to maintain backwards compatibility for existing uh, applications on Ethereum. And so I think making really significant breaking changes to the EVM is just hard. Mm. Um, I think it's sort of an open question whether another chain will come along. Like, like certainly there are, there are aspects of the EVM that I think in retrospect, everyone agrees were maybe not the best design decisions. Um, but I think this is sort of cliched, but I, I think a lot of people would say that that's sort of how technology evolves and, you know, the best tech doesn't always win. And so I, I think it'll be really interesting over the next five years to see how the EVM evolves, how sort of the crypto landscape as a whole evolves, and whether there are, like, whether other chains or other programming environments 
uh, pop up that just give uh, like a uniformly better experience uh, relative to the EVM. That's not our focus, but yeah, just a sort of interesting question. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the question for, because I know that the Polygon project and the teams are very, very Ethereum focused, but I wonder like with the research and the the construction that you've created, like could you... I mean, I assume, uh, I assume you could, but you could you have a different like VM compile down to what you have underneath the hood? I'm guessing yes. You just have to create different logic. Yeah, I think the the, the question would be whether we, it would be because we're making so many design decisions that are sort of tailored to the EVM and EVM compatibility. Whether something else would uh, be more inefficient, or or whether it would be better to to create another VM that makes slightly different design decisions, like maybe a heavier use of, of native field elements or something like that. And then that might be a better option to, to compile to. Mm. Yeah. And I think Cairo is a very interesting example of how we could do this, where they have Cairo itself, which is not really designed for Ethereum at all, as far as I know. And then they have this compiler, which translates Yule intermediate code down to the format that Cairo uses. And I think that that might not be the best approach if we want to make Ethereum applications as fast as possible, because ideally the internals of Cairo would be designed for based on what computations are done in the EVM. So our approach is really to make the VM very tailored to what's happening in the EVM, very focused on making binary operations as fast as we can. Um, mm. And then I, I think if we wanted to support a brand new language that was more snark friendly, we would probably do that as a separate VM instead of compiling both to the same format. We would probably come up with a completely different format that's not really tailored to the EVM at all. Mm. And I know that actually like on the Maiden side, that's what Bobbin is doing in a way. I know that there is a different language and a different VM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think there's an assembly language right now. Um, I, I think there is maybe a little bit of influence. It, it is basically a binary machine that deals with binary 32-bit integers. And I wonder if he might have done it differently if it weren't for the, the goal of EVM compatibility. Mm. I want to ask you, you keep mentioning this term Yule. I actually don't know what that is. What is that? Yeah, it's a intermediate code format that the Solidity compiler compiles Solidity code to uh, before it's converted to EVM instructions. Okay, and what you're saying is Cairo goes Cairo Yule base? I, I think for, for Starkware... Yule is converted to the format that Cairo uses, but it, okay. I haven't really taken a close look at it. So it, it would go from Solidity to Yule to, uh, we, we're calling it ZK bytecode or System Zero bytecode or something. Okay, cool. That's actually really helpful to to parse that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you picture, like once this is developed and you have this sort of functional EVM Run, like you can basically, or EVM compatible underlying chain. And and actually, I, I one of my questions is, where are you at? But like, let's get to that after. Like, how would it actually be working? Like, would you then become a roll-up? Is that kind of the end goal, that you're a roll-up? Or do you have like, 
I don't know, some other format you picture yourself becoming? Yeah. So I think our focus is on, and, and this isn't novel to us, uh, Starkware and ZK Sync have also kind of proposed this, but um, rollups end up being a lot more expensive than what's called a Validium. Um, and so so keeping transaction data off chain for most transactions allows us to, to kind of compete for users with, with side chains and with uh, all tail ones. And I think that what the success of Polygon has really demonstrated is that like different users require different trade-offs between cost and security. Um, mm. And so I think being able to be flexible and give like high value accounts access to a ZK rollup where they know that data will be made available on Ethereum and giving uh, more fee sensitive users access to be able to make transactions on like a side chain environment that's still guaranteed uh, by zero knowledge proofs, I think um, it's kind of the way forward for, for us. So you are going to do that opt in, opt out. What does that look like actually? Like, is there a, does somebody have a dashboard where they can choose this or is it like they're acting within a different system? Does the DAP, do the like the contract deployer actually make that call? Yeah. So, so I think the, uh, the contract, uh, deployer would make that, uh, determination. It, it might also be possible to do it at the transaction level, but I think it would be at the, the contract level. Hmm. There's also a concept that's been floated in the talks that you've given, or like maybe just general polygon talks, which is horizontal scaling. What is that? What is that in this context? Yeah. Just the idea that, Using these recursive proofs, we can really scale out to a large number of transactions. We can parallelize the work so that we have many machines generating these transaction proofs. And then mm -hmm. as we build this proof tree, we still use this high degree of parallelism to scale to a large number of transactions without really sacrificing latency. Mm. I think when I heard it, I thought you meant sort of like additional rollups. So like new rollups separately acting in a, in this horizontal way. But what you're talking about is within a single kind of rollup or validium, basically within like an instance of Polygon Zero, you'd be doing this horizontal scaling by just doing this recursion at the different levels. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you envision though a world where you do deploy <laughs> Polygon Zero multiple times? Or do you really picture it being like a single instance? I'm not sure if that would work well because when we have contracts interacting that are on different rollups, then users might have to exit and enter another rollup. But maybe if if there was an application that or certain applications that really didn't have other dependencies, maybe something like a game that doesn't really interact with the rest of the ecosystem, hmm. then that I think that could work where it's on this rollup that's not really the main rollup that's just used to help scale. Also, do you have a validator set? Like, do you actually have some internal security or are you purely dependent on main chain security? Yeah, so our, our design is almost like a side chain where we have our own committee of voters who are voting mm -hmm. to commit blocks on this a separate chain. Uh, so it, it, it's like a side chain in a lot of ways, but without the security drawback of a sidechain, since we have validity proofs, then these stakers can't just vote to commit something that doesn't make sense or that contains double spends or anything like that. Mm. 
I, I think the Hermes team uh, has proposed a few different ways to avoid having a separate validator set, but we, we see kind of like for us, the lines between being a separate L1 and being an L2 are, are really blurry, especially when validity proofs are involved. And we, we mm -hmm. see like a validator set secured by Matic sequencing transactions and then generating proofs. Maybe just to add to that, I think our system will actually have three levels of finality because of this design. So the first level would be when the voters on the sidechain decide that they've they've all voted to commit some block, a block on the sidechain. The second level would be when proof generation has completed for that block. And then everybody knows that the block is indeed valid. Mm -hmm. And the final level would be when the checkpoint has been sent to the Ethereum bridge. Th th that would provide a stronger guarantee because then we know that there can't be any forks unless the L1 itself has a fork. Okay, interesting. I think we're kind of getting close to the end of this interview. And I realized there was a question I forgot to ask earlier on. And that was what, like, what was the name Mir? I think when I was trying to get you on the show originally, <laughs> that was one of the questions I'd wanted to ask. And I realize you're not using it anymore, but what is it? Um, so, so it has a really pretentious uh, meaning, which I think I, I maintain is like kind of cool. So in the 19th century, when Russia uh, was still operating under serfdom, um, there were these uh, Russian political theorists and philosophers that were trying to come up with an alternative form of organization that would be kind of distinctively Russian. Uh, and so they came up with the Mir, which is like this self-governing, collectively owned um, commune that, uh, huh. yeah. And so the, so, so that's fine. It's, uh, you know, great. Uh, the problem is that no one can pronounce it or spell it. Uh, I think the ticker was already taken. So it, it was a pretty <laughs> easy decision to, uh, to reprint. That's good. Well, thanks for answering that burning question that I had for, for many years. Um, and I guess it won't matter anymore because you're using a different name, but also good to know. Cool. Well, I want to say a big thank you to both of you for coming on the show and exploring, like kind of walking me through what Polygon Zero is, what it was, what it's become. I guess I do have a last thing, which is what's next. I, I do want to hear if you have any upcoming things that we should look out for. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think recursive Starks have been uh, like recursive verification of air-based Starks has been uh, completed and we're going to be releasing more about our VM and uh, our compiler in the not so distant future. Yeah, I'd, I'd say right now we're very focused on getting EVM support working, which is a fairly large project, especially things like we have smart contracts that create other smart contracts and then do, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff like that that is a little bit complicated to support that we're working on right now. Cool. I also want to just highlight that if anyone is interested in learning more about what you've been talking about, you will be presenting at ZK Hack on March 8th, uh, which should be coming up very soon. And yeah, you're going to be giving a talk on Polygon Zero and the work you're doing. So yeah, I'm excited to see you there. And I want to say a big thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Anna. It was a lot of fun. Cool. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast producer, Tanya, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.